We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. That's our focus uh, here this morning, and we'll, we'll see if, if we can make it through the entirety of this text. There's a lot of really important concepts to, to discover, to contemplate. But let me remind you of our context. Again, we're studying the heart of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is describing our position in Christ. We've been raised and seated on the throne, verses 1 to 10, as well as reconciled and set in the temple. That's what we're looking at, verses 11 to 22. Now again, this entire passage really, I mean, our, our focus particularly, when I say entire passage, I'm referring to that latter half, verses 11 to 22. That second half of the chapter that passage hinges upon verse 13. If you were with us last time, we looked at some of those key concepts there in chapter 2 and verse 13. And the big idea is that we have nearness to God, that we particularly as Gentiles have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. We have nearness to God afforded to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the big concept through the text that is really the hinge point of the passage. The big idea is that we have been and will be exploring in both last week, this week, and next week at least, is we're looking at these big ideas from verses 11 to 22 that first we're asking and answering the question, what did God do? Well, he brought us near or nigh by the blood of Christ. That was our focus last time, verses 11 to 13. But how did God do this? How did he bring us nigh by the blood of Christ? Well, he did it through Christ, who is our peace. Christ is the peacemaker between us and God. And we'll see that in our text today, verses 14 to 18. And then we'll see why God did this. Why did God bring us near through the cross work of Christ? Well, we'll see that in verse 19 to 22. But God did this in order to make us fellow citizens and members of the household of God. He has given us, we who are Gentile outsiders, he has made us Christian insiders through the cross work of Christ. He has given us a place to belong. He's given us a purpose, uh, etc. And so there's so many important ideas to explore as we look at this passage. Now, again, our focus today is verses 14 to 18, and we're talking about how Jesus brought us nigh. And he's done this because, as our passage will declare, Christ is our peace. He is our peacemaker. Now, this key word, peace, is going to appear at the beginning, middle, and end of our paragraph, our section here from verses 14 to 18. We'll see the word appear in verse 14, verse 15, and verse 17. It's clearly the emphasis of this section. So if you got your Bible, let's read it, and then we'll look piece by piece through this really important text. All right, Ephesians 2, verse 14 to verse 18 says this. For he, and again, speaking of Christ, because recall, maybe it's helpful. Let's go back and read verse 13. He says, but now, right, after you, what you once were as Gentiles, but now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why? How? For he is our peace, who has made both One, both being Jew and Gentile, we'll come back to that, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. We'll come back to that idea, a very important concept. He's done this by verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, 
so making peace. And that he might reconcile both, both Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, slaying, or excuse me, having slain the enmity thereby. Verse 17, he came and preached peace. Notice again, the key word, peace. He came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him, we both have access, both of us, Jew and Gentile, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, as we look at this important text, again, key phrase, key word, peace. Beginning, uh, middle, end of this section. This is the key word being repeated throughout. But notice in verse 14, we're going to start off where it really camping out on this phrase when it says, for he is our peace. Now, this isn't as clear in English as it is in Greek, but the, the word he is emphatic in the Greek. It's describing how God is, is, or Christ, he himself, he is our peace. He's the one who brings peace to us. His coming, the coming of Christ and the cross work of Christ is what reverses the hopeless situation of lost Gentiles, right? This is the hinge, is but now in Christ Jesus, we who are far off are now brought nigh by the blood of Christ. Why? How? For he is our peace. Christ himself is our peacemaker. Now, in order to really appropriately appreciate this text, I want to zoom out for a second. And what I want us to do for the next few moments, give me 10 minutes to try and develop this because I think it'll be worthwhile. I think it'll help you better appreciate this text. But I want to begin our examination of this paragraph by tracing what you might call the theology of peace through some of the key passages in the scripture. In other words, I want you to zoom out and think big picture outside of the book of Ephesians and think through this concept of peace. Because when we do this, It will allow us to see what Paul is doing here, how he is climaxing some really important ideas that the Bible has to talk about when it comes to the subject of peace. Now, again, if you were with us last week, you may recall this, but when Paul calls Jesus our peace in verse 14, he's probably leaning on the passages from Isaiah. We get this because if you were with us last time, we talked about it briefly, but chapter 2, verse 13 of the book of Ephesians, is very close. It's, it's if not a direct quote, it's a, an allusion, a parallel with Isaiah 57 and verse 19. We mentioned that in brief last week. Well, I want to go back to that idea and develop it a little bit, because if that is what Paul is thinking of, when he uses the words of Isaiah 57, verse 19, to write the words of uh, chapter 2 here in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 13, then Paul is most likely leaning upon this concept of peace that is hugely important in the book of Isaiah and how it surfaces from Isaiah 40 to 66. So I want to to camp on that. Other scholars will argue that rather than leaning on Isaiah, Paul is perhaps leaning upon the sacrificial system at large. The idea that we have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ right, is, is an illusion, and we made point of this last week, that it's probably an allusion to the fact that Christ is our sacrifice. He is the lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world. He is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, which is the means that God created in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, in order to provide peace between himself and his people. But what I want you to see is that these two ideas of God's, you know, these two options, if you will, that are argued by scholars, that when he, Paul, calls Jesus our peace, what is his backdrop? What is his thought 
pattern that brings him to that conclusion. Is he leaning on Isaiah or leaning on the sacrificial system? Well, I would argue it's probably both because those two ideas climax in Isaiah 53, the most famous passage in all the book of Isaiah, which is what informs so much of New Testament theology. So if you were with us, uh, we just finished it a while back. Uh, in our Sunday school hour, we did a study through the book of Isaiah. We concluded that. Now we're doing a study through the book of Proverbs. But when we studied the book of Isaiah, I gave a whole lecture to this, this idea of peace or shalom through the book of Isaiah. And so I, I'm going to take that 55-minute sermon, and I'm going to cram it into 10 minutes. And I already started my 10, so I think i got about eight and a half left. Okay, so stick with me. But no, this, I, I will keep it. I'll just hit the high spots. But Paul is probably thinking through this concept, perhaps as it is presented in the book of Isaiah, in order to make this point in Ephesians 2. So it's helpful for us to be aware of what Isaiah teaches on this. Now, the word peace is a hugely important term in the book of Isaiah, and it shows up 29 times. It's the Hebrew word shalom. We talked about it a little bit in the morning session, but the idea of shalom is more than the English word peace. In our English word, we tend to talk about peace as the absence of conflict, or we make peace a synonym with tranquility. While that is absolutely true, it's only half of the idea. In Hebrew, the word shalom has more weight to it. It imports not only the idea of tranquility or the absence of conflict, but also the presence of good and blessedness. Some translators will even toy with the translation wholeness, as in we have a whole life. Being in shalom or peace is that we have nothing missing, no missing component, but we have a full and meaningful life. Well, that term shalom is a hugely important concept in Isaiah. And I already mentioned that, so let me move on to the next one. Look at that. We're already making time. I just skipped a slide. Aren't you glad? Isaiah 9 is the first time the word shalom appears in the book of Isaiah. Now, it's a really important passage, and it's one you all know. Whether you realize it or not, you know Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Why? Well, because it appears on a bunch of Christmas cards. It's talking about how Christ is the son that will be given He's also described in that passage as the Prince of Peace. In other words, the, Isaiah 9 is a really important passage because it, it helps, it gives us not only the first two occurrences of the term peace in the book of Isaiah, but it sets really the, the tone for what is coming throughout the rest of the book. In this verse, or these verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Isaiah is foretelling that there is going to be a coming Davidic descendant which was promised all the way back in 2 Samuel 7. Like I say, 2 Samuel 7 is your mountain peak of your Old Testament. Everything's leading up to it. And then from you know, that section of, of uh, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant promises, everything afterwards coming down from it. It's looking back to it. That's your peak. Your mountaintop of your Old Testament is 2 Samuel 7. It's this promise that from David there would descend a figure that we later come to call Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. The word anointed is simply referring to the idea of pouring oil upon somebody to appoint them to an office. Three particular offices were uh, typically in the Old Testament. They poured oil upon someone to appoint them to three different offices, prophet, priest, and king. What's interesting is that in the Messiah, this coming Davidic descendant that the Old Testament has so much to talk about, he will be a combination of those three offices. He will be in one person, a prophet, the prophet, the king, the priest. He will fulfill all functions. 
in one individual. And Isaiah 9 is one of the really important Old Testament passages that tells us about this coming Prince of Peace, but it calls him the Prince of Peace. Well, again, as we work our way through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has much to say about what the Prince of Peace will do to bring peace to the world. He will say, for instance, in these passages in Isaiah, and we won't take the time to go to all of these for sake of time because I have too much to say today, but trusting the reality that Yahweh will indeed establish peace in the end, right? That's what Isaiah is telling us in Isaiah 26, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 66. He says over and over and over again that there is coming an era of worldwide peace. There is coming an era where God will establish peace to the ends of the earth And trusting in that reality, believing that God will do what he says he will do and bring peace to the world, that's what gives us confidence that whatever hardship we experience in the present will ultimately be overcome. That's what he says. Really, one of the key key verses is, and I will read this one just because it's so important. They're all important. But Isaiah 26, 3, you've probably heard this one quoted before. It's a very quotable verse. But it says this, He says, you, uh, Isaiah speaking to Yahweh, he says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. So then he turns and he says, trust in the Lord forever for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. But this idea that we are trusting in him who will bring peace is what brings us current peace. In other words, the future reality that peace is coming is what helps me have that spirit of rest or peace or tranquility in the present, that I can go through a lot of difficult times in this life, but this isn't the end. He is going to make all things right. The era of peace is coming. So Isaiah says, look to that. However, Isaiah will also say that only the righteous who trust in Yahweh will ultimately inherit that final peace. He'll say this in Isaiah 57 several times in that chapter. The flip side of that is he says in Isaiah 48 and 57 that there is no peace to the wicked. In other words, if you believe God's promise and trust in him that he is the prince who will bring peace to the earth, then you will participate in that peace one day. You will be part of his kingdom. But if you reject that, if you believe that peace is your doing, or peace is something that we as humanity must accomplish absent God, he says, if, and you reject God, he says, then there is no peace to the wicked. It will be a fleeting attempt at finding peace in your life. If you eject God out of the equation, there is no peace for you. That's what he says. So again, we see this concept elaborate or elaborated upon throughout the book of Isaiah with this concept that God's faithfulness to his covenant promises will have the final word. He will bring peace. However, he must purge his sinful people, that is Israel. He brings them through difficult times to purge the sin from their midst, but he promises to them that he will ultimately restore them in the end. He will bring them into peace if they trust in him. And when this happens, it'll be a time of great rejoicing, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 55. But again, this is where it converges in the book of Isaiah. This restoration or peace that God is promising can only come as the result of the suffering servant. In other words, Isaiah predicts that there's coming one, again, Messiah is what we call him, and he will take 
the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He will take it upon himself. The famous passage of Isaiah 53, he uses the term peace right there in that text. And he's saying that this peace that the Prince of Peace will bring is going to happen because that very person, the Prince of Peace, took the punishment that we deserved. So, as he says, the chastisement of our peace, the chastisement that brings our peace fell upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, but God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53. That's where it climaxes in the book of Isaiah. He says, there is coming a figure who will die in our place and he will take our sin. He will take the punishment we deserve and he will give us the peace that we can have between us and God. So again, the whole idea of the book of Isaiah is he's calling us. In Isaiah 52 verse 7, it's a beautiful place that does this in the book. But he says, we are all called to trust Yahweh and to trust in his coming suffering servant to enjoy peace for ourselves but then proclaim peace to the lost and dying world, to tell other people that they too can have peace with God because of the work of the suffering servant who died in our place. Now, that idea that is traced to the book of Isaiah, I'm going to take far less time, but let me also highlight just briefly before we get back to Ephesians, let's stop off in the book of John. Because when we go to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, Jesus seems to be keying in on the same concept. In the Upper Room Discourse, twice in that text, Jesus is going to make a peace promise, if I can put it that way. In his farewell address, Jesus announces that he himself will bestow peace. In fact, he calls it in John 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He promises to give us, as his followers, his very own peace the peace that he himself enjoys between him and the Father. This perfect relationship of perfect harmony, no sin soiling the relationship, total peace and harmony in our relationship with God, that sort of relationship that, the, that God the Son enjoys with God the Father, he says, I will give that to you. He says the same thing later in the uh, discourse in chapter 16, verse 33, where he once again makes that idea. Uh, known that in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And he goes on to describe how he is the source of this peace. Now, this idea, this promise that he makes in chapter 14 and chapter 16 comes full circle when he dies on the cross, raises from the grave, comes to his followers, and three times in John chapter 20, he addresses them with the, again, we think, Right? If you're not careful, you read it and you think it's just a common greeting. And it is a common greeting to this very day. Right? If you go to Israel, you ever gone to Israel or been around a Jew and they say, hey, shalom. Right? It's the common greeting, shalom, shalom. But Jesus greets his disciples with that greeting three times in John chapter 20. And when he does this, he's doing it not only as a common greeting, but as a theologically rich concept. He says, because he died, because he rose again from the grave, the peace that he promised back in chapter 14 and 16, he now can give to his followers in chapter 20. Now, with all that, there's your background. Go back to Ephesians, okay? As Clinton Arnold puts it, Paul's thought in Ephesians 2 is this. As we read Ephesians 2 and verse 14, Jesus is our peace. 
As Arnold puts it, he says this, quote, with the coming of Christ, the anticipated eschatological era of the Messiah, the end times peace that the Messiah promised, it's arrived. And he's brought with it an entirely new situation for Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus Christ, end quote. Again, as he's pointing this out, it's a helpful uh, point that he's trying to make is that with the coming of Christ, as Jesus himself rises from the dead, tells his followers in John 20, peace be with you, peace unto you. You can now have peace. Paul says the same thing to his Ephesian readers. He says, guys, we have peace with God because Jesus is our peace. And he's telling us that this promised age has dawned in a sense. Now, it's not totally over, right? He'll tell us later in the book, elsewhere in the New Testament, there is a coming messianic age that will dawn in its entirety. Has the Messiah already come and gone? Yes, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, this peace that we can have now relationally between us and God, that peace will then be extended globally, politically, economically. Everything will be remade and he will rule and reign as the Prince of Peace from the throne of Jerusalem and bring peace to the earth. So this, let me summarize, okay? You got this in your notes, I'm pretty sure. So let's summarize this idea. Peace is a big concept in your Bibles. But let's summarize really the particularly New Testament thought on peace. When we say peace, it can mean one of several things, all of which are equally true. So recognize the distinction, appreciate the complexity. Why? So that we can apply it right here in our local church. First, the Bible, when it speaks of peace, particularly in Romans 5, Acts 10, a couple of good examples of that, it's referring first to objective peace. The reality being that there, is a, there are terms of peace that have been brokered between us and God through Christ. The reality is, the Bible is clear, crystal clear on this, Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 5, that the wrath of God is upon us because of our sin and our unbelief. We have, we shake our fist in the face of heaven. We say we don't need God. We can create our own morality. We can seize the day and create our own destiny. Who needs God? And that autonomy that we exercise, that sort of attitude, brings the wrath of God against us. God says, okay, how do you respond to your children when they do that to you? Right? People are like, oh, how dare God be mad at us? Okay, you do this to your kids every single day. You know what I'm saying? Where that kid, which you, right? I mean, this is great. I love it when my wife gets onto this. She goes, I gave birth to you. Right? I can't claim that. I mean, I didn't give birth, but... But she goes, I gave birth to you. I carried you for nine months and I puked my guts out. And then I gave birth to you and we wipe your little butt and we feed your little mouth and we clothe you. And then that kid turns around and says, I don't need you, right? Who are you to me? And they rebel against you. And you're just like, oh, how do you think God feels? You know, that's the idea is we are, we're so puny, and yet we raise our fists before God and he says, who do you think you are? Well, that idea of wrath of God upon us, how are we going to solve that problem? That's a big problem. When the creator of the universe who can completely destroy us you know, with a thought, the snap of his fingers, if you will, how is, how is that going to be solved? Well, no problem. Jesus came 
and he brokered a peace deal between us and the Father. He brokered that peace deal by saying, I will take the punishment that they deserve. I will take it upon myself and I will grant to them peace. He forged a peace treaty between us and God. So first and foremost, the idea of peace is an objective peace that we have received through what Christ did for us on the cross. That's what we talked about last time, that he brought us nigh by the blood of Christ. His blood appeased the wrath of God, grants to us peace. But this objective peace is secondly, also by implication, a subjective peace. Meaning, I feel peace inside me, my heart. This is Philippians chapter 4, that God keeps our hearts and minds with the peace of God through Christ Jesus. That idea of internal peace, that I feel at peace. Objective, I don't, you know, again, the idea of objective peace right here, you know, back Romans 5, is that that's a peace deal. I don't care if you feel like it or not. That's true. That's objective truth regardless of your feelings. Is God made a peace terms, you know, terms of peace between us and him through the cross work of Christ. But because that is true, now I feel it. This is the sigh of relief. This is the thank you, God, for what Jesus did for me. But notice this subjective internal feeling of peace is only possible because of the objective peace that has already been secured right? This is the idea of two armies, right, about to go to war, but, some, but the delegation goes, hammers out a peace deal, they decide not to go to war, and they come back and they announce to everybody, whew, here's the peace treaty, we're good, they're not going to come invade us, and everyone goes, whew, that was a close call, right? That subjective feeling of peace is the result of the objective peace treaty that's been hammered out. But if we take it a step further, we already kind of alluded to this, we also have qualitative peace. This is the divine peace. When Jesus says, my peace, John 14, verse 27, my peace I give to you. This is not like the world gives. For instance, Psalm 28, verse 3 describes how the peace of this world is deceitful and fleeting. That we think we have a moment of peace only to have turmoil right around the corner. But the peace that Jesus gives cannot be taken away. It's qualitatively different than the peace that this world offers. And I like to say, because it just, it just makes the point so well, so it's slightly redundant, but I love to say, right, the whole worldwide peace corps, right, humanity's attempt to bring peace through United Nations, Right, and that monument that they built outside the, the, the United Nations, the picture of this guy, it's a sculpture, of a guy taking a sword and beating it into a plowshare. That's quoting Isaiah chapter 2. And the people who made that sculpture know that full well. But what they're claiming, Isaiah 2 says, that worldwide peace where mankind is going to take their implements of war, sword, and beat it into a plowshare, implement of agriculture and peace and settled lifestyle, that sort of peace will only happen through God. But the UN says, we got this. And have you ever studied what happened? You know, has the UN brought worldwide peace? That's a joke. You know what I'm saying? That is, that's the farthest thing from worldwide peace. They promise peace, it doesn't happen. Well, Jesus promises peace, it's going to happen. It's qualitatively different. But 
I got another step because this is where Paul is taking us in Ephesians chapter 2. It's simply this. The fourth kind of peace, if you will, is corporate peace. That is, because we have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. That's where Paul is driving at in Ephesians chapter 2, is that we can have unity among the body of Christ because Christ is our peace. In other words, notice Paul's application of his quote-unquote peace talk. Though the Bible, both Old and New Testament, spends a lot of time speaking of the peace that God has provided between himself and us, Paul doesn't stop there. He wants to take it a next step. Paul is simply making this argument that if we have peace in our vertical relationship between us and God, then we ought have peace in our horizontal relationships one with another, especially between Christians. If I'm at peace with God through Christ and you're at peace with God through Christ, then we should be at peace with one another. So what Paul does is he uses a really interesting object lesson. Really interesting. Let me develop this. He says that God through Christ, has destroyed or torn down the wall of separation or the wall of partition. Notice verse 14 again. He says, For he is our peace, who has made both one, and he's speaking of Jew and Gentile, the both one there is Jew and Gentile. He has made both of us one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now let me develop that for just a moment because when I first discovered this, it was like mind-blowing for me. It was really helpful. Paul is not talking here merely in abstract terms. He's probably alluding to something that was very known, well-known, commonly, you know, common knowledge in his day that he's referring to. So let me develop this briefly. Although some have suggested that there was little evidence for Jewish and Gentile conflict in the cities of, you know, this this, uh, area of Western Asia Minor where Paul is writing, you know, the, the city of Ephesus, Josephus, that's the first century Jewish historian, he tells us otherwise. In fact, in Antiquity of the Jews, chapter 16, verse 45, if you want to double check, but he, Josephus, unequivocally refers to anti-Semitism as being rampant in Roman Asia. He notes that the Gentiles, quote, feel a hatred for our religion which is undeserved and unauthorized, end quote. In other words, Josephus tells us that there was a worldwide anti-Semitism that was within uh, Jew versus, you know, Gentile within the Roman Empire. And I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that, but I've got a whole, oh man, I got a lot of, there's a really good book on this, if you're interested, that talks about the Jewish relationship with Rome and the Roman Empire that led to the Jewish-Roman wars. Um, point being, Josephus's point, well documented, well, we're very clear. The point is, this was an empire-wide problem of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. We would be naive to suppose that the Gentiles of Ephesus, that is here in, in the city of Ephesus to whom Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians, we would be naive to suppose that the Gentiles in Ephesus were somehow insulated from that hostility. They didn't like each other. So what if you have a Jew and a Gentile that both get saved and now they're coming to the same church? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Thank you, right? <laughs> I was looking for a giggle there, <laughs> right? That's the reality. And don't look over your shoulder to somebody that you think, oh, right? You may have feelings of that towards someone in the room here today. Reality is, newer converts, presumably, that, that is the Ephesian converts, presumably carried ethnic animosity into the church, 
which would have fueled the tensions. There would have been this simmering tension that existed within the church. So if the church continues to evangelize the Gentile inhabitants of the city in the seven or year, seven years or so since Paul was there, remember, he, was, he, he planted himself in the city of Ephesus. He was there for the entirety of his third missionary journey. Remember that? Well, then he leaves and he comes and he writes this book back to them probably about seven years-ish after he had been there. So the point is, if the churches in that area had continued to evangelize the Gentile inhabitants of the city, even after Paul had left, such believers needed to help uh, understand this both Jewish Old Testament heritage of their faith and God's design of obliterating the distinctions and uniting them both now in one body in Christ. They needed to be reschooled when it comes to their ethnic animosity. So this Jew-Gentile divide, however, was perhaps most dramatically seen in the so-called wall of partition that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 2. This is probably alluding to the actual wall that was located in the temple dividing the court of women from the court of the Gentiles. This was an actual wall that I'm going to show you a picture of in just a second, but upon this wall, there were several inscriptions known as Thanatos inscriptions. The word Thanatos is the Greek word for death. They're known as death inscriptions. And this is what they read. Quote, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. End quote. All right, that's your warning, caution, yellow sign, if you will. Go ahead, cross this line. But if you die, that's on you, right? I mean, that's the way the Jews felt towards the Gentiles. Now, let me show you some pictures of this. This is a, a screenshot of a, I don't know how you, can you see that? Now, this is really cool. This is one of my favorite stops in uh, Israel when we were over in Jerusalem. This is the Israeli Museum located in the city of Jerusalem. They have all sorts of cool artifacts there. Um, you know, stuff I'd read about my whole life and it's like, oh, now I see it, right? Right there in the, all sorts of cool artifacts. But also there, there is this massive scale, you know, of, of Jerusalem in Jesus's day. Now, they weren't trying to go for Jesus's day. They call it the first temple period because they don't like Jesus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you didn't know that, let me clue you in on that. But the point is, they don't, but it is first century. This is what Jerusalem would have looked like in Jesus's day. That's the point. Because this is what, this was the height of Jerusalem before it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So that's what this model is built to, to show. Now, I don't know if you can see See this door all the way back there? All right, that's a, that's a full-size door. All right, of what's the average height of a door? Like six foot, seven, seven foot, something like that. All right, so there's the door in the background just to give you a little perspective on how big this scale is. It's huge. And so our guide took us there and just, we just sat in front of this model for like an hour and a half and he had this little laser pointer and he just showed us all of what Jerusalem looked like in the days of Jesus. And it was really helpful, really helpful. But center of the picture is a model of the Temple Mount, what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. Now, here are just some of the, I don't know if you can see that very well, but the outside court is known as the court of the Gentiles. Inside, the next court in is the court of women. But then you have that partition in between. In fact, here's a zoom-in shot. That partition was, again, it was about waist high. You see it? Here's it highlighted. Right, highlighted in red, that's the partition that existed between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women. 
And court of women, meaning uh, Jewish women could go there. There was also a court of Israel where Jewish men could go. And then there was the actual court where the priests could go. Um, but no Gentile could go further than that you know, little waist-high barricade. Here are two examples of the Thanatos inscriptions that have been discovered. Uh, both of them housed in the Israeli museum there in Jerusalem. And you can see on there the Greek writing. Perhaps there's one. There's another one. And that's where those, again, the writing, the Thanatos inscriptions, don't cross this or you die. Right? That's, there they are. Josephus talks about this. We have all sorts of historic evidence of this. This is probably what Paul is referring to. So here's my point. Back to Ephesians. This dividing wall, or fence, this partition, as he calls it, is what surrounded the inner courts of the temple, and it was an important symbol of this extraordinary division between Jew and Gentile. They don't mix. Jew and Gentile don't mix. In fact, Paul was intimately and recently familiar with this fence, because do you remember this? This was back uh, just a few months ago when we were studying the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 21, remember this? Paul was falsely accused, he didn't do it, but he was falsely accused of taking a Gentile past that barricade. When that accusation was made, what happened? Do you remember this? Read it if you don't remember, Acts 21. But this accusation was the catalyst that led to nearly four years of imprisonment. There was a riot. When someone said, Paul just brought a Gentile past that, the whole Jewish society that was within the Temple Mount right there, they erupted into a riot and they tried to kill Paul. Remember this? And this Roman, with his forces, his soldiers, march down into the Temple Mount, surround Paul, and drag him to safety. And they were trying to kill Paul. Why? Because he crossed the barricade. This is, is so clear. We have lots of examples of this. Uh, in fact, let me give you one that's random because I think I got a minute. Okay. In that book I was telling you about, and it's just, it cracked me up because it just, to me, it helps me visualize the animosity that was there. It's, it records that book I was telling you about, about the Roman, you know, Jewish hatred of each other. In that book, they cite a story that is given by Josephus where tensions were so high between the Romans and the Jews. Any little thing would spark a riot, a revolt, a fight, mobs, you know, in the streets. It was a mess. Well, one story goes to where there was this Roman soldier and he was allowed in the court of the Gentiles because he's, you know, he's a Roman soldier, he's a Gentile, but he can't cross the barricade. So this Roman soldier, who, again, the Romans have subjected the Jews, the Jews are the peons, the Romans are the mighty you know, people in charge. This Roman soldier didn't like the fact that he couldn't cross the barricade. Now he was ordered by his superiors not to cross the barricade because it would cause a riot. So he still wanted to express his displeasure. So do you remember, do you remember this? I shared this a while back in one of our Wednesday nights when we were talking about Jewish history. So this Roman soldier decides to go up to the barricade, bend over, flip up his skirts, and make a fart noise. <laughs> Guess what happened next? The Jewish people riot, and they about kill that guy, and there's a, there's a mob on their hands. And that was, he was just trying to crack a joke. Didn't go over very well. All right? Do you see where I'm going with this? That It just shows you the tensions were high. And the smallest little thing would spark off. A, and, and blood was spilt. I mean, again, this, this mob starts, people die in these mobs. I mean, it's brutal. 
And so, and this, of course, erupts into the famous Jewish-Roman War, which was one of the most difficult wars Rome ever had to put down from AD 66 to 70. The Jewish people were, were fighters. They were tough to subdue and get back in, into subjection. But the point is, this sort of hatred and animosity was normal in the Roman world. So, again, as Paul is writing this passage here in Ephesians chapter 2, he clearly has the temple in mind. We'll see this later on in the text. We saw it already earlier with the language near and far that we talked about last time. That's Levitical language, being brought nigh to God, being granted access to the temple, access to the presence of God through the sacrificial system. We talked about that last week. But we'll also see his allusion to the temple later on uh, down in uh, verse 22. We'll get to that next time. But the point is, as Paul is writing this passage, he's clearly got the temple in his mind. If he's leaning on Isaiah, like we already argued... Then in Isaiah 56, God made a promise that one day after the suffering servant dies in our place, that then even Gentiles would be granted access into the temple. That was a promise God made in Isaiah 56. So Paul is building upon this idea. And here's the point. This Jew-Gentile division was deep. Often boiled over, as I just described, from cultural bigotry to outright violence, people dying, blood being shed out of this hatred. Yet Paul was trying to forge integrated communities of believers, Christians, both Jew and Gentile. He's saying, you guys are equals in Christ. And so to do this, to forge that sort of unity, Paul points to theology. What's the answer? It's who you are in Christ. It's your identity in Christ. So he teaches them theology. No single thing separated Jew from Gentile more than the temple. That barricade being a good illustration of it. So Paul here highlights in a couple of verses here in Ephesians chapter 2 what he'll spend several chapters articulating in the book of Hebrews. In other words, this is like a two-verse summary. In my Bible, I have, you know, in my margin, (laughs) insert book of Hebrews. Okay, this is Paul is going to go way more elaborate in the book of Hebrews describing what he's here saying in two verses. Namely, that Jesus is the fulfillment of ceremonial law. That Jesus is the one who has brought, read verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hatred, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That word ordinances, I think our key word. That's the primary Greek word used to describe the ceremonial system, the temple sacrificial system, all that God set up in the book, in the book of Leviticus, etc. But in Christ, that has been abolished, torn down. He says, why? So that, verse 15, for to make in himself of twain, of two, one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, That is one congregation. You have Jew, you have Gentile sitting together in one church service. And he says, this has happened. This reconciliation has happened because of the cross. It is through the cross that Christ, having slain the enmity thereby, he destroyed this hatred by bringing spiritual equality to Jew and Gentile. Verse 17, it says, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and to them that were nigh. There's a reference to the Gentile and to the Jew. He preached peace to the Gentile, those who are far off, and the Jew, those that were nigh. Those that had access to the temple, those who who did not. Why? So that, verse 18, For through him we both 
have access by one spirit to the Father. Let me comment on this for just a few moments and then we'll wrap it up. Notice again, as I said, what Paul's doing here in just a few verses is much more elaborate in the book of Hebrews. We've done a series through the book of Hebrews, if that's of interest to you, where we go nitty-gritty through all the book talking about this key, key, key theme, this, this concept, this motif, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. And when Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, when Jesus, remember, he even walked the earth saying, one greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. This reality of Jesus as the fulfillment of ceremonial law this reality erases the ceremonial distinctions between Jew and Gentile and allow both of them to approach God through the person and work of Christ. That's what he's saying. We both have access to God, so much so that he calls us one new man. We could get lost in this, uh, and I'll just kind of real briefly summarize. But he says we are in Christ, Jew and Gentile are one new man. The point is, he's, he's probably alluding Back to this idea of Adam, the original man, who brings, you know, he's the progenitor to the human race, that we're all one race. However, when God singles out Abraham, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, he singles out the Jewish nation for a purpose, a function. The Jewish nation was, uh, had a very specific, has a very specific purpose in the plan of God. First, they were to bring the Messiah. The Messiah himself was to be Jewish, a descendant of David, etc., so the Jewish nation was important for God to create so that first the Messiah would come, but second, God used that nation and is still using that nation to, acknowledge, to, to declare himself to the world, that all the world would look to the Jewish nation, the fact that they exist, and say, that is a nation unlike any other nation. There's no other nation that's been wiped out twice, and they came back, bring, resurrecting their dead language. Hebrew used to be a dead language. Nobody spoke it. It was written, and it was only known by a few rabbis. It was a dead language. Now, go to Israel today. Hebrews everywhere. I mean, they don't even know English. Right? There's a bunch of them. I, I taxi driver. I'm like, dude, I'm having using Google Translate because I can't say to him what I, you know, what I need to say because he doesn't understand English. He, his mother tongue is Hebrew. That's all he's ever known. And the guy was in his 50s. That's amazing. That's never happened in the history of the human race except for Israel. Why? Because they're the people of God. God is using that nation to continue to this day to declare himself as God. But what we see is this inherent division between Jew and Gentile that was created you know, in, in Genesis 12 is in Christ, there is no distinction. When it comes to our spiritual standing before God, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Paul is using this imagery of new man. It's like he's paralleling Jesus with Adam. It's like we've gone back to the beginning. Jesus has started a new human race. And we all who descend from him, that is believers in Christ, those of us who have the spirit of God, who are called the children of God, we are all part of one big happy family. That's what Paul says. And so he says, Jew, Gentile, get along because you're both in Christ. He goes on to say that he put to death the enmity. This is a, kind of an ironic phrase, as Arnold points out. Ironically, it is by Jesus being killed on the cross that he is able to kill the enmity, this hatred that was separating people from God and from one another. And as Robinson notes, the slain was a slayer too, end quote. 
that he who died on the cross thereby put to death the hatred and the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile. While that was true objectively, they had to learn it subjectively, experientially. So as it says, he came and preached peace, both to them that were afar off, Gentile, those who were not Jew. He preached peace to both of them. Both of them needed peace with God through the sacrifice of Christ. And this phrase that he came and he preached peace is a loaded phrase. This deserves a sermon in a sermon, but I, you know, we, won't, we don't have time. But this phrase implies, first, the preexistence. He came, which means he existed before. He came to earth. He preexisted earth. He came, it also in, it implies the incarnation. Right? He preexisted, but then he became human. And he preached peace. That's his mission. He has a job to do. He came. And remember, was this warmly welcomed by the Jews? Did the Jews like to hear that they needed to repent and to trust in Jesus as Messiah? They did not like to hear that. They thought that they were already right with God because they were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their ethnicity, they thought, gave them spiritual security. John the Baptist said, no, nope, doesn't work that way. Jesus comes along and says, no, nope, doesn't work that way. You need to individually, right? As I often say, God has no grandchildren. Ye must be born again. It's an individual choice. It doesn't matter if your parents were Christians. If your parents believed in Jesus, that's great, but that doesn't mean you do. You have to do it. It's a personal decision, and the Jews didn't like hearing that. They were, they were holding to that security in their ethnicity. John burst that bubble. Jesus burst that bubble, and they killed him for it, ultimately. Both of them. <laughs> but this idea of what God has done through sending Christ to come and preach peace, it also implies his sending of the Spirit, that he's going to continue to direct and empower his people through the apostolic mission, throughout the book of Acts. God is continuing to preach peace through Christ. In other words, that phrase in verse 17 not only applies to what Jesus did when he walked the earth, but what Jesus is doing right now in and through us. He is still preaching to the world that there is a place where peace is possible, and it's only in Christ. This is why it's so important for us to evidence this. We'll talk, we've talked about it before. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. But when Jesus prays this, the high priestly prayer, John 17, he's praying for God to bring peace and unity to his people, his followers. Because the world will know that we can have peace with God when we have peace with one another. Is this, by this, Jesus says, will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's right. It's a powerful concept. So he says this in verse 18, and then, then we'll wrap it up. But notice he says in verse 18, he says, For through him, that is through Jesus, we both, that is both Jew and Gentile, we both through him have access by one spirit unto the Father. This idea of access is a key word. We're going to talk about it more next time because he's going to develop it in verses 19 to 22. We'll save that for next time. But the idea of access is alluding to the Holy of Holies. It's the idea that you have access into the presence of God and you can have favor with God. That's a Levitical term, remember? You, you have access with God, to God, through the sacrificial system. Now he's saying Jesus is the means by which we have that access. And that verbal form of that word is what was regularly used in the Old Testament to refer to this, to come to God through a sacrifice, to draw nigh to God and to be right with God by bringing a sacrifice into his presence. You could trace that to the book of Leviticus. Paul is harnessing that language, and he says, we both now, Jew and Gentile, have access to God, fellowship with God, and peace with one another through Christ. Notice again, it's a very powerful concept. 
But notice the presence of the triune God in this single verse. He says, we both right, have access through him, that's through Christ, by one spirit unto the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit. We have access to the Father through the Spirit all because of the work of the Son. And in the gospel, we have this wonderful harmony that has been achieved because of the cross work of Christ. And this is what brings us essential equality. How do we apply this? Simple. Like I said, please don't look over your shoulder and make a face. But there may well be people in the room that you don't get along with very well. Does that happen? Can Christians bicker? Can Christians fight? Can Christians say mean things? Be petty? Sure, it happens all the time. But what Paul is saying is that we have an essential equality. And that equality is based upon the cross of Christ. The presence of the Spirit inside of me. You may not like me very much, but I have the same Holy Spirit that you do. So we got to get along. Right? That's the idea. Is he is forming you into what you should be. He is forming me into what we should be. We'll talk about it more later. But in chapter 4, he gives us the essential components to Christian unity. One of them is forbearance. I love that word. Forbearance is preemptive forgiveness. That's my favorite definition of forbearance. Forbearance means I'm going to put up with you and you're going to put up with me. Because there's going to be times that you say something really stupid. And there's going to be times that I say something really stupid. And it's going to hurt your feelings. And and you're going to hurt my feelings. But the reality is, I'm going to be forbearing with you. And I'm asking for you to be forbearing with me. Choose to forgive me even before I mess it up. Right? And if we have that attitude of humility and forgiveness and forbearance that he says is the key to Christian unity, if we have those things, it works. We can have a family where we gather together people from all different walks of life that outside of this room have nothing in common. But inside this room, we have everything in common because we are bought by the blood. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We each have, and we'll talk about this next time, but we are fellow citizens and we are placed into the temple of God that we have a a function, a mission that God has given to us as believers in Christ that we are working and cooperating together for the cause of Christ. God is filling the world through us as he indwells us and as we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, then we are now functioning in a way where we're filling the earth with God's glory. But we can't do that if we're busy infighting, if we're busy not getting along ourselves. Then the world looks at us and they say, they are no different than us. Why would we believe in Jesus? That's a joke. Let us not defile the name of Christ with our petty arguments. So, with that said, I can't think of a better song to sing than In Christ Alone. Let me walk you briefly through these lyrics. We'll stand and sing, because you sing better standing, and then we'll close. Let me walk you through these lyrics briefly. Notice the, the, the beauty of these lyrics. It says this, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. 
this cornerstone, which we'll talk about that a little bit more next time, but that's one of the components of, you know, he's the cornerstone, the temple is built upon. This cornerstone, our solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Notice in particular, the second verse. In Christ alone, who took on flesh. I love this line, one of my favorites in the song. Fullness of God and helpless babe. Right? The incarnation of Christ. Christ alone, who took on flesh. Fullness of God and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness was scorned by the ones he came to save. Did that happen? Did they scorn him? Did they reject him? They did. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. So here in the death of Christ, I live. I love that. See that ironic statement? In the death of Christ, I live. That he, through his death, as he says in Ephesians 2, he was, he slain, having slain the enmity thereby. There in the ground his body lay. Because we don't end with the death. We talk then of the resurrection. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. When then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Last verse, implications. If that's true, if Christ died for me and he rose again, and I have peace with God because of this. Then he says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man. This is good Ephesians stuff. We'll get to that particularly chapter 4, chapter 6. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Isn't that good? All right. My wife's going to take her place at the piano. Stand up if you, if you would. Stand up with me. And let's sing this together. In Christ alone my hope is found. Give us our intro. Here we go. In Christ alone my hope is found He is my light, my strength, my song This cornerstone, this solid ground Firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are stilled, when striving cease Comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand on the second. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay. 
light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Now the implications. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Gracious Father, thank you again for this glorious day. Thank you that in Christ and he alone our hope is found. That, Father, we can stand free, no guilt in life. Lord, we can have freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame because of the person and work of Christ. That no power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand. Lord, we're so grateful for that reality. We pray that as we contemplate that you as our peacemaker has forged peace between us and God, might that also be true between us and one another. God, help us to live in unity and harmony. May we go, if we have wronged or been wronged by people in the church, may we go to them. May we restore peace and harmony and fellowship one with another so that the lost and dying world can look and see and say they are the followers of Christ because they love one another. So we commit ourselves to you afresh. Lord, we renew our vows of commitment and loyal love to you because you loved us first. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed.